Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. This is the Words Matter Library. Our guest today is an actor, filmmaker, writer, activist, and poet. Her acting credentials include Joan of Arcadia, The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, House, and she will next be seen on FX's Why the Last Man. Her written work has been featured in The Cut and The New York Times. Amber Tamlin's latest book, Era of Ignition, Coming of Age in a Time of Rage and Revolution, is out next week in paperback. Amber Tamlin, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to get to the book, but actually before we dive in on that, I want to take you back to September 2017 when you wrote an op-ed for the New York Times entitled, I'm Done with Not Being Believed. And in it, you detailed some of your experiences with sexual harassment in Hollywood. Now, that was just a few weeks before the Times published Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey's Pulitzer Prize winning reporting on Harvey Weinstein. So why did you decide to write that article at that time? That was a really interesting period. I think when we look back in American history, too, we will see that it was a breaking point for a lot of women And for a lot of men, too, who've also been sexually assaulted and harassed. And I had written that piece actually a few months before, but it was sort of in the zeitgeist. And women had been talking about it more personally and privately than they had, at least in in my young lifetime. But for a while, it it had really sort of been bubbling up. And I think a lot of people would suggest that that What women were feeling in 2017 was the product of Donald Trump being elected. And I think in some ways that's true. But to my mind, and I talk about it a little bit in the book, I I would actually say that it has more to do with Hillary Clinton's loss. Uh, This idea that a woman who is that capable, still flawed, imperfect, but brilliant and so good at what she does in her field can still lose in the face of the village idiot, is something that every woman knows. Every woman has experienced that no matter what her job is, no matter what her career is, no matter what her life force is. And so 2017, what happened and what what propelled me in specific with that op-ed was that sense of feeling exactly what I said, which was really and truly done with shutting up, with being quiet. And I think you saw several women doing that around that time. Rose McGowan was doing it. There were even women in political fields, Maxine Waters. I mean, she's always been a a powerful voice for women throughout her entire political career. But you were seeing it a lot more than, than we had ever seen it before, I think. So what are your thoughts now that we're heading into Harvey Weinstein's trial in New York? And in fact, recently, the prosecutors in L.A. just unsealed a new indictment against him with further rape charges. Yes, we were actually just talking about that on the elevator in the ride up here. I'm kind of speechless, to be honest, because I just found out about it a few hours ago. Um, it's really powerful, and and I'm hoping that those indictments out of Los Angeles will prove the indictments that finally truly put him in jail. Obviously, I hope that the, the New York trial also turns out in that favor, but who knows? It's a very complicated trial. And so to that end, I think it's 
a great day to be a woman and to feel like there is some justice in the world. And I know because I've been texting and speaking with a lot of the Weinstein survivors who I know personally, and I think that it, they feel a lot of emotions today. It's a very, very uh, heavy extraordinary, powerful day and and quite a way to start off what is sure to be an incredibly potent and emotional year. Right. I, I can only imagine what they're experiencing. And often it is painfully slow to watch the justice system go through its process. Yeah, it's painfully slow. And, you know, you also just want to make sure there's a lot of superstition around it. You just want to make sure that nothing goes wrong, that everything is played by the books, that all the evidence is actually believed, which is the scariest part, I think, for any survivor or victim of sexual abuse or assault, because there is a sense that you are not going to be what lawyers call a perfect victim. You're not going to be the one that comes in and no matter what you say, there is going to be a way to not believe you or to disprove it. So it is a very, very intense day, to say the least. Right. Well, as a lawyer, I hope, especially in the era of Me Too and post-Me Too, as we move forward, that they will learn to lose that kind of language, perfect victim, and that we all become more educated about the nuances of both experiencing, holding on to, and reporting sexual assault and harassment. Yeah. I totally agree with you. And I think also there have been small, important crucial steps, especially here in New York, where some of the laws are quite archaic. But, you know, we worked very hard within Time's Up and with the help and support of Governor Cuomo to change the statute of limitations here in New York, which was just – it was pretty insane what it was before. I can't remember what the exact years were, but it is now changed to something that is – far more in favor of the victims, allowing them to have time to process their pain or their experience so that it's not like you need to report it immediately within the first year. Otherwise, it doesn't matter anymore. So I think things like that, changing those types of laws in any state is a small but but impactful and powerful step towards making things better. I agree. Now, if we could just work on the rape kit backlogs that are in every state, we could we could make even further improvements. But uh, that's for another day. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's let's talk about your book. Explain the title for us and why you decided to write it. This term came to me trying to think of something to encapsulate. I think everything that everyone has been feeling. I mean, we especially were feeling it very heavily in 2017, but. That kept going in 2018. I feel like 2019 had a little bit of a of a lull and things were sort of calming down a little bit. But now they feel like the fires are back burning under so many women's hearts right now. It's just a very, very intense time here in the United States. But I, I really wanted to write something that encapsulated the way in which everyone is feeling this perpetual chaos, this sense of things being out of control, um, things feeling like we don't have any control over gender anymore. We don't have control over race relations anymore. We don't have control over bodily autonomy anymore. But all of those things are true. And the world is changing rapidly and quickly, but in a very, very important way. And I think that a lot of these struggles and these micro conversations that we're having, especially about things like white feminism, which is a very triggering term and upsetting for a lot of white women. But this, these are important social conversations that are happening and that need to happen in order for us to all become better and and braver in the work that we're doing and the allyship that we maintain with other people if we really want to 
see that kind of change in our country, we have to first fix the problems at home and first fix the problems amongst each other. So to me, one of the most important things was encapsulating in this book the idea of what everyone is doing with this rage, what women are doing with this anger. You know, there's a really brilliant book by Rebecca Tracer called Good and Mad. I love that book so much. It came out last year. And I think what Era of Ignition does is it says not just what the anger is, but what are we doing with it? How are we pushing it to new heights and how are we changing the world with it? And so the book is part part memoir, but also sort of part cultural critique and, and looking at the world that we live in. But it does chronicle the inception of Time's Up and everything that's happened over the last three three years. One of the things that you write about in, in the memoir piece, but also plays into this cultural moment that we're having, was your experience directing and writing the screenplay for Paint It Black. So could you talk about that particular experience and the challenges you faced doing that? It's uh, it's so interesting because when I wrote Paint It Black, when I wrote and directed that film, we didn't have, and that was even just a few years ago, but we didn't have what we have now post Me Too, post Time's Up, which right. is you see like out of Sundance this incredible initiative to, to get more women to be directors. You see the 4% challenge, which is basically challenging corporations and productions and companies to hire more women and specifically hire more women of color to direct in television and in film. So you've seen this real influx and change in what is deemed important as far as representation and about creative point of view. And you've seen more women brought into those positions of power and you see the incredible work that is being made because of that. Born from it are the Ava DuVernay's and the, you know, Melina Mansukas and all of these incredible directors who are creating really visionary work. And so it's interesting. I, I feel I have a lot of feelings about that because I feel like I missed the mark by like two years. I feel like had Painted Black been made this year or last year, it would have had a totally different trajectory and experience. And it's to me, that movie is a labor of love. And I know it's going to find its second act somewhere at some point. You know, it had a great run. It was on Netflix for a while. And I was really proud of how it performed there. But, you know, it's it's really it's interesting to see that from a perspective of where I'm at, of somebody who grew up her entire life sort of only being an actress and being a writer and then transitioning to this other space at a time when there really was not the support for women directors like there is now. Well, congratulations on being able to do that at that time before there was this huge surge. Uh, and I suspect <laughs> yeah. it will it will have new life at some point. But actually, one of the passages from the book touches on something that I found very interesting. And I wanted to ask you about it and how you kind of came to have the wisdom of the passage. So uh, here it is. Quote, until women are allowed to make mediocre works of art while still succeeding in the way that many white men get to do this every single day, we will not have the power to take our creative freedoms back. We will be limited by impossible expectations reserved for the few. As long as we are put and put ourselves on a patriarchal pedestal, too high to succeed and doomed to fail, then surely we will be set up to do exactly that every time. So how did you come to have the wisdom of that paragraph? I thought it so succinctly captured 
the idea that until women can can be mediocre in the same way and and still succeed and soar to new heights, that they'll be doomed to fail. Well, first of all, I really loved your reading of that. Um, and I feel like I should have <laughs> hired you to do the audiobook. Uh, no, no, but I'm glad. I'm glad I, I was up to snuff for the actress. Thank you. Yes, um, I, I think this is something that we don't get to talk about enough, which is this idea of purity and perfection, and that women can really only succeed if they have created something absolutely perfect. And it's yes. part of. I mean, one of the great representations of this problem is Hillary Clinton, is the person, you know, is a is a politician of that stature who needed to be tough on international talks, yet warm and motherly, yet she should have short hair, but it shouldn't be too tight and hairsprayed, and she should wear a pantsuit, but it should be a flattering pantsuit, and she shouldn't smile too much or laugh too wide, but she should also still be kind and funny and sweet. I mean, it's just like, Women are literally expected to be absolutely everything all at the same time while also being absolutely nothing at the same time. And I think that's something I wrote in the book as well. Mm, and yes. and it's a terrible position to put anyone in and especially any artist. But I think that that is how most women feel about everything. And so until we can stop just celebrating the works of women that have succeeded but also saying – yeah, there's a movie this year that got nominated for an Oscar, let's say. I'm making this up. But, like, I would really love for a movie to get nominated for an Oscar that was written and directed by a woman that is not that great. That'd be awesome. In fact, I'd like to see a lot of those movies because I feel like men who have written these films and men who do television in the same way as well, they, because of their relationships, because of their stature, because their point of view is what we have been used to traditionally honoring and seeing and considering as important and worthy of putting on screens, that is what we have nurtured as a society and a culture. And so for them, it doesn't have to be perfect. It never does. But for women, it has to be something so wholly unique and different because there has been so little for us out there. So I think we just have to keep reminding ourselves that we we deserve more than this model of perfection that has been projected onto us, this idea of perfection, and to consider that that mold is actually being broken open. And when you look at, even just since the 2016 election, you look at the women who have been put into the into Congress um, and the Senate, you look at the Ayanna Presley's and the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's, you look at the women who are everything that women have been told not to be in politics, especially women of color, which is to be uh, loud, to be angry, to be very vocal in the face of white supremacy and including leftist white supremacy, which means women on their own side who are telling them to be quiet. And I think that that is a really powerful breaking in the status quo. It's saying, here is this new generation of women who are not what you like, and we don't give a shit. I don't know if I can cuss on this podcast, but I just did. You most certainly can. We like to put that rating on the podcast when we can include those words. Yeah, so I just I think good. I think it's important to make sure that that women are not charming and what other people expect or need all the time and that we are what we are and who we are and that our emotions and how we feel and how that feeling is reciprocated 
whether it's in politics or the creative field in film and television, is worth honoring, even if that emotion is uncomfortable or even if we don't consider it as important as rational conversation or rational thought. I have a lot to say about women and emotions. That's, again, a whole other thing. But I think all of these are just really important pieces to that larger puzzle. Well, I find it interesting and helpful, actually, that most of your answers so far both reflect your personal beliefs and experiences, but then you tend to pivot to this cultural and political moment. An era of ignition does that, too. It doesn't just apply to you personally. You see it uh, as where we are as a country. And there was another um, bit I wanted to capture and, and get your thoughts on. And now that I've set the bar high, forgive me for for reading a passage poorly if I do you so. You better but kill it, Katie. Here's the bit. You better kill I'm it. I'm working on it. Uh, pressure's on. Quote, we, uh, well, I guess I could read it mediocre. And no, it's fine. Just read mediocre it. <laughs> as much as the excellence, right? Yeah, that's, exactly. That's where we're going. There you go. Um, quote, we are a nation that still cannot wrap its head around the overwhelming inequality among genders and races in our society and institutional systems. We're a nation that cannot agree on the definition of misogyny, let alone put a finger on its pervasiveness or manifestation. But there seem to be benchmark eras in our history that have brought great and radical change to fruition, times when we weren't just living through difficulties but actively confronting our values and agitating for revolutionary change. I believe we are in one of those eras right now. So talk a little bit more about that. Yes, I I am a big proponent of confrontation. I am a big proponent of being uncomfortable in order for change to be harnessed and to come about. And I think that that is something that we haven't experienced as a culture in a long time. I think I talk in the book in the first chapter about the quote-unquote waves of feminism and the idea that the last one happened sort of more recently with the advent of social media and all of that, but or rather with sort of recently as far as like the 90s are concerned. But I think that it's actually happening right now. I think that you're seeing a different kind of a wave that is that is taking place. And what's so important about that is remembering that this all feels like it's totally out of control. This idea, which a lot of people will chalk up to political correctness, and they'll say, oh, you can't say this anymore. You have to use these weird pronouns for gender. You have to say they and and z. And it's upsetting and confusing to cis and straight, especially white people. But there's so much that's just sort of been thrown up in the air. And we all have got to have the patience and the grace and the intelligence to see where it lands. And it is not up to any of us individually to see where it lands or to tell it where it's supposed to land or to scoot stuff over so it's in a place where it lands that's more comfortable for how we feel. We don't get to dictate. And I think that that the more we can just sort of give in to the chaos, uh, give in to what's been ignited, the more we will see something really powerful on the other side and not be so worried that things feel uncontrollable right now. Because I I remember, you know, right after 2017's Me Too had happened, I – right after it had happened, I remember – that was the first thing out of everyone's mouths is this idea, this terrible, fearful idea that men were canceled forever and things were going to change and that it was a, a witch hunt and uh, now it was going to become this situation where men were not going to feel comfortable to be in a room with women. They weren't going to know what to do with their hands. 
because you know men are uh, like they're Ken dolls. They don't they're they're made out of plastic, so they don't know what to do with their bodies. I guess they don't know how to hug without right. touching butts. It just right. it's ridiculous. The whole thing was so crazy at that time. The whole concept. So to me, I just think it's really important, no matter who you are, even if you consider yourself a very quote unquote woke person, to consider what you are doing in your lifestyle or in your world that is potentially silencing somebody else or even more importantly not helping somebody else get a leg up or come to the front of the protest line with you as it were and i think that that's such a big issue we always talk about and and think visually of this idea of of women linking hands and i'm always asking people to don't forget to reach a hand behind you to the women who are standing behind you who can't break through and get in that line with you and pull them forward just as you would want someone to pull you forward and that to me is one of the biggest most important things that we need to be thinking about and sometimes what that means is again just letting things fall where they may stop trying to control the narrative let yourself be uncomfortable let yourself get called out it's okay you're not going to die it's fine you'll probably learn something in the end and become a more powerful person in your own life uh it's interesting you bring up the the Kendall point and the discussion we were having then about men and fear and how to behave because there was a CNBC poll out this week that said 21% of men say they're afraid to hire women after me too and that of course generated a Twitter back and forth between I think it was the Daily Beast's editor in chief and Megan Kelly so it is still very oh, much a part of the conversation interesting. still very much an issue so we're we're still talking about it. But um, I mean, so my beyond- one thing, my one thing I would wanted to say to that is that the men who feel like they can't hire women because of something as ridiculous as that are the men who are going to eventually not be in those positions of power anymore. And not because women are coming to get you, but because you don't deserve to be there. If you don't understand how simple this conversation is, that we're talking about consent, that we're talking about basic respect in a workplace so that women are not feeling intimidated or scared, then you don't get it and you don't deserve to be there. And I think one of the most powerful things that I've seen is the women who have been hired in especially the entertainment business to run companies. It has changed the landscape of the work environment. It just has. And that is statistics. Inevitably. There's many right. statistics you can look up, you can find. There's evidence that shows when the power balance with gender is more equal in a workplace, sexual harassment and assault goes down, period, because the playing field is leveled. There is not a strange energy in the room. It's, it's, more, it's more equalized. So I definitely think that's going to be a, a continued conversation. But those who are not seeming to understand how to – enter that conversation or the nuances of it are the ones that are really doing themselves and their own careers a disservice. Beyond misogyny and and the gender imbalance and, and the issues with that that you talk about in the book, you also address something that might even be more deep-seated and issues of race and privilege. And you, you spoke about it briefly earlier, talking about white liberal apathy. But there's another piece of the book I wanted to to bring out. You say, quote, white apathy most especially white liberal apathy during an election cycle is one of the most selfish acts of privilege in which we participate. To say you're willing to sit out an election because a candidate does not tick every single one of your boxes is a form of self-centered blindness. Consider the children of minority families, of minority women, who have 
everything to lose from someone like Donald Trump becoming president, while the rest of us merely have everything to choose from. So how big a role did the white liberal apathy play in the 2016 election to you? And what can be done to make sure it doesn't play the same role in 2020? Oh, well, it it was huge. I mean, it's, you know, you had something like 51 percent of white women who actually voted for Donald Trump, although many of those white women are conservative. But that's not a qualifier. It's just saying it's just showing how deep the divide of the problem is. It's something that I think we have had to come to terms with and that we've had to have larger conversations with. And I think at that time, too, there was a lot of people were really upset about Bernie Sanders not winning the nomination and and a lot of people crying and saying it was all rigged. And I think, unfortunately, their tendency was to lean towards uh, sort of more self-serving attitudes in saying that they were either going to sit out or vote third party, which I get. But at the same time, if you look at this particular president, look what we have now. And I'm I'm not stupid. I know that people who wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders who didn't are not the people who decided an entire election. But I do think cumulatively it's a problem. It's a problem that extreme neoliberals especially look and they think, uh, I have this right and I'm doing the right thing because I believe that if this if this presidential candidate doesn't have all of these policies, every single one or 99% of them, that I'm not going to vote for them. But that, to and of itself, is a problem. It's just as problematic as as the Democratic candidate who is sort of a hidden centrist person who doesn't really have liberal values. That's just as problematic in my mind. So I think that we have to find a balance and we have to take, honestly, some cues from the right in a certain way um, as far as coming together, especially in this next election, which all hyperbole aside, will change the course of the of the rest of our lifetimes forever in this country. It will change everything if Donald Trump is elected again. And for some reason, I sometimes get fearful that people don't quite understand that. And again, they just sort of see this as another election year. So my hope is that this time around, there's still going to be some infighting. I mean, there's still going to be people being mad about their candidate not winning the nomination. But I hope after the primaries that we come to a place in the general election where we can all come together and say, look, we have some really great candidates running. We do. We've got several of them that are really phenomenal and they would be great. And they certainly would be a hell of a lot better than the current occupant in the White House. So I think it's going to be on us to come together and let those things go and vote for the right choice. You mentioned Bernie Sanders, who actually just enjoyed a point bump in both Iowa and New Hampshire and is now tied for first place, at least in in a couple of polls. I don't but you believe actually in mentioned in sorry. I don't believe in polls. <laughs> well, I just I just want to remind two thousand sixteen taught us anything. It taught us that. Yes. Um, I was just gonna say But you mentioned yeah. go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, if 2016 taught us anything, it's exactly what you just said, which is that everyone saw Hillary Clinton winning by a large margin. So enjoy that right. that point bump, Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> well, but speaking of Bernie, you mentioned in the book that your husband was a Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016, and that caused some tension in your house. So has that tension improved or has his selection improved since then or changed? He still is a huge Bernie supporter, and I have pushed him a lot to actually get out and campaign for him. Talk about 
apathy. I mean, he's my husband. I love him to death. But there is a sense of like, I'll just maybe donate some money or, you know, it doesn't matter if I do anything and get out there. It's like, yes, it does. And if that's the person you want, then you should fight for them. But I think it's a little less aggravated this time because before it was Hillary Clinton who was my ride or die and she still is forever. I would leave David for Hillary in a second and he knows it. Um, (laughs) He knows it. It's okay. She's my cheat. But but this time, you know, I've endorsed Elizabeth Warren, who I think is an extraordinary candidate. And to me, she is everything I've ever wanted in a candidate. She has very solid, powerful proposals and plans that are really written out extraordinarily well. Um, They're very clear. I like a lot of her policies. And on top of that, I like that she gets to be everything that I've ever wanted to be as a woman in a candidate, which is that she gets to be fiery. She gets to be pissed off. She gets to be emotional. She gets to cry at times. She gets to be soft-spoken. She gets to be shrill and loud. She is truly this sort of all-encompassing candidate and the cherry on top is that she's a woman. I truly think she is the best the best candidate that we have without a doubt for a for a myriad of reasons. So, you know, and she's I think close enough to some of the policies of Bernie Sanders that David and I don't get too upset about it, but that, but that's what happens when you're really passionate about a candidate. But both of us, no matter who it was, no matter who it was, I will be out there the second that nominee is chosen and I will be advocating for them. I will be getting out the vote. I'll be doing everything that I can. And that's part of me doing away with my own apathy of any kind, hurt feelings or not. In talking about the dramatic change or at least change that has happened in how Hillary experienced being the candidate and how at least Warren is experiencing the candidacy for the nomination, I wanted to bring out another piece of your book where you say, At no time would it ever be possible to cause damage to a man's campaign or career by using some of the tactics used against a woman's campaign or career, such as implying Hillary Clinton was too physically weak to serve as president because she came down with pneumonia, or what she wore, or how she did her hair made her unlikable and therefore unrelatable. So I know you do support Elizabeth Warren. You were a supporter of Hillary Clinton. As you watch how this campaign is covered, you say Warren can be shrill, can be emotional, can run through the range of emotions from sad to to fiery and angry. So do you think that we have improved at least since 2016? I think a little bit. Yes, I do. I look at Bernie Sanders getting a stint in his heart uh, and having a heart attack and the right. way in which everybody was like, he's going to come out swinging harder than ever, which is true. And he did. And that's incredible. And that's the way that's the same kind of narrative that women deserve to have if they get sick or if there's a, a reason they have to get off the campaign trail for a second or if they happen to get emotional. And I have seen a little bit less of that. But it's still there. The sexism is still there. The misogyny is still there. The changing of narratives about what someone stands for, who they are, is still there. But I definitely see a change. And it can't be helped because you have so many women running now. It's unfortunate that a lot of the women have had to drop out of the presidential campaign. But there are so many women running for Senate and Congress and across the country. And and it's important to remember that 
that even that on a local level is going to change the way we see women, the effectiveness of women in public spaces, the oratory affect of women's voices and how they sound. So instead of us seeing this one woman, i.e. Hillary Clinton, we're now seeing lots and lots of women with different personalities that it's that we're able to sort of open ourselves up to that. And while, while certainly Ayanna Presley and AOC and those women have had to deal with mountains of not only sexism and misogyny, but also racism to boot, they are thriving in their careers. They are thriving as politicians, and they are inspiring young women like me. They're incredibly inspiring. I think I agree that we have made a dramatic improvement from 2016 to 2020. And we we talk about Hillary being the benchmark. It always makes me think of Shirley Chisholm, which was before my time. But I know that in 1972, she ran for the nomination for president and her campaign was unbossed and unbought. And if we had just been able to make the incremental improvement from 1972 to 1976, then we would be in better shape now. But sadly, we took a few steps backward on that. But I agree with you. I think we have seen improvement. And I think you answered this, but I know you support Elizabeth. And if she she does not, uh, Senator Warren, if she does not get on the ticket, how critical is it to you for the Democrats to put a woman on the ticket in 2020, either as vice president or president? It's extremely necessary. The argument that it shouldn't matter, the gender doesn't matter, is akin to saying race doesn't matter. The way you look doesn't matter. And I think we need to remember as a culture and a society that representation matters. What we see matters. What we show young girls is power and is powerful and is controlling of power matters. And That's why I think we have to continue pushing that narrative and saying that no matter what, even if we and even if we have a woman president this time around, let's have one the next time around, too. Let's have them for a little while. Let's see how the country changes on a fundamental level, but also in a philosophical way. What does it do to us? How does it change us to have women in positions of power? And we're not going to know that until we really fill up those spaces with those types of voices. I think to paraphrase Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was asked, how will you know when there's enough women on the Supreme Court seats? And she said something like, when there are nine. There it is. When there are nine. (laughs) So meaning when all the seats are filled, which is not to say that is and that is not a statement of excluding men. It's not. It is a statement of empowering women and more representation because those seats have been filled predominantly with men, all nine seats for our entire history. So it's time to see people who look like us and who speak like us and who think like us and who feel like us. Well, I don't think we could end on a better note than that, Amber. Thank you so much for joining us. And for those of you who enjoyed this conversation and want to read more about what we've talked about, and I would highly recommend it, the book is called Era of Ignition, Coming of Age in a Time of Rage and Revolution. And it's a fantastic read. Thank you, Amber. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.